Welcome to Tales from the Bridge. Today we are talking with Andrew Liptak. Andrew has just written a book called Cosplay, A History. So if you like fan culture and cosplay, you're going to love this book. It comes out this June. So we hope you enjoy this conversation we have with Andrew. Episodes of Tales from the Bridge are coming out every two weeks for the summer. So check us out every other Wednesday. There will be a new episode. All right, let's make our way over to the bridge. We're very happy to have Andrew Liptak with us today. Andrew is a writer, a journalist, and an historian. His published works include science fiction short stories, articles on nonfiction military history, and he has a science fiction newsletter called Transfer Orbit, which aims to make sense of science fiction and how it helps us understand the future. Andrew has just published a historical nonfiction book called Cosplay a History, which explores how dressing up in costume as fictional characters has become a mainstream cultural phenomenon. It must be noted, however, that Andrew is a bad guy. He is an official mad scientist for TRADOC, which is the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, which sounds horribly evil. And he openly aligns himself with the dark side of the force through his affiliation with the legendary 501st Legion, which, for those who don't know, is an international organization dedicated to the dark side of Star Wars. And while he's clearly a bad guy, I think he's actually a good guy. Regardless, though, we're fine with mad scientists and the dark side. So thanks for being here, Andrew. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I, I feel like the mad scientist designation needs a little bit of an explanation. That, yeah, I got one. So, so what what tr what the mad scientist thing is is it is uh, Tradoc is is the um, training and doctrine command for the U.S. Army, and one of the things that I've been very interested. I, my background is in military history. I attended uh, Norwich University, which was a military academy here in Vermont. Um, I was there as a civilian, but I studied military history for my master's. And um, as I was getting into journalism and was writing about science fiction and you know real world stuff, it, the, the two sort of blended. So one of the things that I've written about quite a bit over the years is how fiction how fiction can uh, be useful to the U.S. military um, as and as a training thing. So the, I got the designation because I went was invited to a um, sort of a small conference that they put on. It was about. Um, Jesus was 2017 or thereabouts. Um, it was it was basically like a, uh, a a seminar to designed to sort of imagine how train how how would the U.S. military train in like 20 30 years from now, so like 2050 and beyond. And so I was I was invited to talk about uh, story and narrative and just like how fiction can be used as a training tool. Um, so like you can sort of if you can imagine something, you can write it down and. Um, you don't have to necessarily spend a lot of money to hire a writer to do those sorts of things or, or create scenarios. So um, what the what the military does, at least to a small extent, is to, to write short science fiction stories or commission short science fiction stories to get people to think about the future of warfare. And uh, that's sort of how I got that as I, as I attended that conference. And I've, I've done a couple of other ones over the years. Um, uh, one, one was a uh, trying to trying to develop a training exercise, de developing a, simu a simulation for uh, trying to imagine, imagine yourself going up against an adversary with an artificial intelligence system. So <clears throat> rather than build an entire artificial intelligence system, get a whole bunch of people to the right area and then have them like mock fight, you can just imagine it on a tabletop. So that was, that was sort of, that's sort of one of my interests and the things that I've written about over the years is um, you know, the sort of the useful nature of, of fiction. Very cool. A little bit long-winded, so <laughs> forgive yeah, me. Great. No, that's cool. We actually talked to another guy, uh, Carl Schrader. I don't know if you him. He's a, know him. He's a science yes, fiction Yes, I actually, I, I'm very familiar with his work. He, oh, he's one of the, um, so a, a couple of years ago for a site called One Zero, which was Medium's uh, tech vertical, they, um, I wrote a, a feature article about this sort of what the, um, what one author calls ficint, fictional intelligence. Right. And, um, a bunch of years ago, I actually came across Carl's work, and I've, I've met him a couple of times. And his is his work is a really early example of this, and it's a really neat. Um, he he wrote a really great story. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. It's a crisis crisis in Aurelia, I think. Mm. Um, I think you can if you search Sounds for it, you can Canadian, find it online. Yeah. It's it, it's a neat little short fiction, sort of like novella length story yeah. where 
about a, a group of Canadian peacekeepers go into this unnamed or this this fictional African store, uh, fictional uh, African country to, um, and they they come up across uh, people armed with cell phones and drones, and that's pretty commonplace now. But this was written in like two thousand three, wow. so it's neat to see sort of this type this brand of science fiction that is. Um, actually really doing some neat predictive stuff it, it's not really like 100% accurate but at least get the idea behind this is it gets you thinking about how the future might play out and then if you can sort of imagine a future you can sort of work your way back and think of like what are the little building blocks that you'd have to hit along the way so yeah um and the the carl's my interview with carl was really influential for me because um he was talking about he, he said that his upbringing he was um uh, he grew up in sort of a religious community. He was, he was very much a pacifist. And he saw this as a way to, um, not as a way to sort of support war, but a way to get people to think a little bit better about how they wage it. And mm-hmm. so um, the, the the article, I, I've th- th- there's a sort of a fine line between like trying to write about the military and trying to seem like you're you know, all out advocating for what they do versus, you know, how do, how do you sort of approach warfare and conflict in a very smart way mm-hmm. with the idea that if you, if you approach it and you train people right, you won't have to use military force as much. At least that's the theory. That's, that's how I hope my contributions have helped is if, you know, maybe there's somebody who's thought about, you know, it gets people to think a little bit more about like, you know, uh, if, if you're an officer or a commander, you know how do you, how do you commit your forces? How do you commit the people under your command, and maybe do so in a way that's not like you know wasteful or uh, you know uh, t- I guess terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. well, strategic that's foresight right. is strategic. what uh, yeah. Carl Carl says. Yes, uh, and uh, and just to stay on the uh, with Carl here is uh, interesting little tidbit here talking with you, Andrew. Is we met with Carl at Fan Expo Toronto. And uh, and did a panel with with Carl, so we got to hang out with him, and uh, we invited him to do a panel. Oh, great! Which he did on on uh, colonizing Venus. So we it was really fun to see him, and uh, obviously hang out with Carl Schrader, surrounded by people in cosplay, was uh, <laughs> a neat little thing. Yeah, and it, it's it, he's a really nice guy. I've I've as I said, I've met him once or twice at cons, and I've I've really you know enjoyed talking to him. It's it's been a couple years since I met him, but. It was a it was a good chat, and I, I learned a lot from him. And I it's something I I haven't written a lot of science fiction in that vein, but it's definitely something that has sort of gotten me. You know, it, it sort of influenced me. Like, because I as I go to write a story, I'm trying to think of like, you know, what are some of the core lessons at that I want to convey to the to the reader, not necessarily to try to predict what. Um, technology might exist but like the idea behind it be the idea behind that technology is you know what can we learn from it from by looking at the technology that we have today and you know trying to think about how we can thoughtfully put it into use um again with the idea that you know if if we can make good decisions we can avoid conflict in Mm -hmm. down the road um and I, I think that, you know, if you train you train commanders to think about it the right way, you know, you're not going to make either stupid mistakes or strategic mistakes. Um, and maybe people, I don't think it will happen, but maybe, you know, people will not fight or find diplomatic ways to go about things. So, um, well, you can certainly and, and it's also a good way to think about the process of warfare, right? Like, like, I think what's what you're saying, right, is like you can make it better as in ameliorate warfare, right? Like rather than just... Yeah do what people do yeah and i mean the, the story of war is is also a story of technology and as you every time we go through some sort of technological advance you know there's a learning curve um i mean right now we're seeing some pretty horrific things in in ukraine and we've seen precursors to that around the world places in syria or um even in ukraine uh, back in 2014 uh, when it comes to like social media or how um, technology, you know, if, if you attack te- if you attack technology infrastructure in the right way, it could be a weakness. So it, it's interesting to see sort of how that plays out. And when does that? Because you have a background in, in military history, um, you know, mm-hmm. this that's kind of unique. I don't know that there are too many science fiction authors who have a background in military history. How does that kind of inform your writing and what you do? Um, a couple of interesting ways. I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting field. 
I think that there are a lot of science fiction writers throughout science fiction, you know, the history of science fiction writers that have been deeply interested in how, you know, military affairs, you know, the military history works. Look at like Robert Heinlein or um, Joe Haldeman. Like, you know, some of these folks have actual military backgrounds that informs their just that informs their work. I don't have I don't have the military background, but I, I have I, I sort of look at it as a as a history thing. Uh, or, or more as a, more as a historical thing, and and it is worth keeping in mind that history, like there's there's a saying that like you know people who forget history are doomed to repeat it. I I don't think that's entirely correct. Um, I much more prefer what I, I think it was Mark Twain that said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And you know, I think ultimately yeah. history is a study of human nature and how do people make decisions and do things and is the better you can understand the people that you are studying the better of uh, the better ideal you'll get of how they might react to something else so um it's kind of, it's kind of funny i work for the vermont historical society here in vermont and um i just came across a picture taken almost exactly 100 years ago 100 and 101 years ago of soldiers here in vermont marching off the war and you know i, I imagine that that process was very much the same like the people who were going getting on the train with their uniforms and their guns and their their backpacks were thinking a lot you know they're thinking the same things that they were thinking you know the, the guys and, and, and women who uh go to war now like they're wondering if they'll see their families again they're hoping that they won't mess up they're hoping they won't die they're hoping that they'll you know do right by their their fellow soldiers so i think that there's a lot that you can sort of learn from the past that you can then apply to the future that's that's how I've tried to do it. I wouldn't say I'm I'm really all that successful at writing science fiction. I've I've, I've published a, a couple of short stories on my own, and a, I've got one professionally published. It it's something that I I continually practice at. Let's put it that way. It's, it's having a master's in military history, I think, because uh, I, I was we were talking to uh, um, uh, John Scalzi, Old Man's War. Um, uh, Scalzi. John Scalzi, yeah. and uh, yep. there's a man who also incorporates a lot of, of you know war content into his writing and he does a great job but I feel like this the realism and, and these days too especially with the Ukraine um, it, it, a lot of this stuff is top of mind for a lot of different people mm -hmm. so but to tell us a bit more about cosplay now on the yeah. lighter note, <laughs> but, uh, you, you know here here's a here's a book that you've just published um, you know I, I we, we've seen a lot of this, people dressing up. and Can you tell us what is cosplay? So the the definition that I have, I, I don't know if it's, it, I, I don't like, first of all, I don't like definitions because there's so many sort of edge cases and exceptions to any rule that you put out. But the way I approached cosplay as, a, as, as my definition was it was basically somebody dressing up to relate to a story, whether or not that was real or fictional. Um, it, it's I see it as a very broad umbrella activity, Co like the cosplay as as I largely talk about and as everybody sort of acknowledges is basically a pop culture phenomenon. Um, so if you are dressing up as a fan to put yourself in the Star Wars universe as a stormtrooper, like I do, um, that's that's one way to do it. Or if you're building stuff to, um, or trying to replicate costumes that you see, um, you know that's that's all sort of that's sort of on the cosplay that you'll most popularly see i don't know how controversial it will be to, to sort of lump in other groups alongside it like um like reenactors or larpers but i, I sort of see them if, if they're not if it's not cosplay they are various they're cousins it's it's sort of a uh because like if you're a civil war reenactor you're trying to get closer to the story of the civil the american civil war um, or the story of World War II or, or um, the, the Napoleonic era or the Revolution, American Revolutionary War. So that's basically how I, that's basically how I approached it. And it, not, not just necessarily reenacting, but like folks who, who build um, like replica spacesuits or they want, they want something like that for, their, for themselves. I, I think that there's, we, we are storytelling creatures and we like to sort of, you know, throughout history, we, we've sort of added props to our repertoire when we, we are recounting stories to one another. And cosplay, I think, is, is another version of, of that sort of that practice of storytelling. 
um, we're not necessarily telling our own story. We're, we're trying to sort of dabble in, a in an existing story, but we're trying to sort of imagine ourselves in that world or at least bringing it to life uh, for the folks around us. So if I'm, if I'm dressing up as a stormtrooper with a 501st, I'm trying to like, you know, it, dep it depends on the, you know, depends on the event. If, if I'm, if I'm at a convention, I'm trying to bring it to life for my fellow fans who are, you know, very in, they have a very in-depth knowledge. So, you know, that's where you'll t t you tend to see people dressing up as more niche characters or really obscure things. If I'm doing like an, a Make-A-Wish event for uh, with the 501st, I'll dress up as a stormtrooper because that's really recognizable. Or if I'm in a if I'm at a parade, I, I might go with something that's super recognizable, like a, like an Imperial stormtrooper. Um, so, but with the idea that you know, some kid might see it or a, or a parent might see it and think, oh, Star Wars, and you know, they can t come and take a picture with me, or they can take a they can see me from the sidelines, or or you know, I give me a high five. And then for that brief moment, that world comes to, comes alive for them, and that's a very cool thing. So, mm -hmm. and what is? Tell me about the Five O First Legion. What, what's that all about? Uh, we're just a bunch of dorks in plastic. <laughs> 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 but, have you guys come up to? Well, I know Five O First comes to Toronto. Have you come to Toronto, Andrew? I have been to Toronto, not as a not as a trooper, um, or not not um, as a trooper. Okay. As a journalist, I've been to Toronto a couple times. I went and visited the set for the Expanse when it was shooting up there, um, and the the sets for um, the, the sci-fi shows Dark Matter and Killjoys. Um, that sort of my, my prior life as a as an entertainment journalist. Um, they were those were parts of um, uh, junkets just to see to meet the cast to interview them and, and sort of get a, a sense of what the, the shooting the, the, sh the shooting stages looked like. Whether it's Fan Expo or it used to be known as Boston Comic Con or um, any number of other other names, but like a lot of these shows sort of blend together after a little while because they're all, ultimately they're, they're sort of the same thing. Like the, they're a, a big organization that comes into a conference center. You have the vendors, the vendors room. You see a lot of the same people. So um, it, it's just kind of fun just to sort of go halfway across the country or across the country to sort of end up in, in a another con that is, that sort of looks similar to um, what you might have back at home, although at, at different scales. Um, Boston uh, Boston Fan Expo is very different from San Diego Comic-Con, and they all have their, their little quirks here and there, mm -hmm. but they're, um, it, it's, it's like being part of a big family in, in some ways, because like you might have friends who show up for one con or f folks who show up for another con, but they're all so, sort of part of your nerd tribe. And that's what I. That's one of the things I really like about going out to cons is, is be, especially the big ones, is you get to see the you know, those friends you might have interacted with online or um, you might have seen last time who were who were back. But but do you like you, you could talk about being dorks in plastic? Where do you get the suits? <laughs> like how do you how do you get them? Do you make them? Yeah. So a, um, there's a. It used to be that you would have to know a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a forum. Um, and this is one of the things I, I talk about in the book is that there is a um, a long history of, of stormtrooper. Like, so let's if we want to talk about stormtrooper armor, back when Star Wars first came out, what you'd have to do is you'd have to go to the movies a couple dozen times and take notes and sort of say, all right, this is what this piece of the costume looked like, and you know, either draw it on a notebook or, or just try to commit it to memory. And then, you know, you go home and you try to make it out of cardboard or whatever whatever building materials you had on hand. Um, and I actually interviewed a guy um, uh, who did this. And, um, you know, he made this really fantastic Stormtrooper, um, Darth Vader, Boba Fett. And just by going time and time again to the, to the movie theater, uh, his name is uh, David Ray. Unfortunately, he, he died uh, after I... Uh, not too long after I spoke with him, he had he had cancer. Um, but his he he shared with or his family shared with me some really great pictures after I had interviewed him, and it was there's these there it wouldn't what I would I wouldn't call them like screen accurate, but they were just for the time they looked really great. So that was one way that people made stuff is that they would you know they would fashion it out of whatever they, whatever material they had on hand. Um, and at some point, folks realized you know hey I know how they made this for the movie. I can go make this for myself, which is um, the process for the films was was called vacuum forming. You heat up a sheet of plastic, and then you suck it down over a mold. 
that has a vacuum cleaner underneath and it sucks the, pla it, the, the plastic's malleable, it'll suck it down over the mold and you get that, sh that piece of plastic the right shape. So there was, um, actually I think it might have been a, a Toronto guy, um, uh, Marco, I think he set up his website called Marco Entertainment and basically started, molded his own suit of Stormtrooper armor and started selling it. Lucasfilm wasn't a fan of that, they shut him down after a little while and um, basically it sort of, you know, this, this sort of thing was underground for a very long time and it still is to some extent. P people can be very worried. Uh, Throughout the 1990s, folks were really worried about litigation from the big studios because the studios thought that like they're going out to make a buck on our intellectual property, and that's changed over time. And as they've sort of understood, they um, the the studios sort of understand what cosplay is, and they've sort of you know as as long as folks aren't really you know setting up their own company and, and making a huge profit off of it without paying licensing fees and, and whatnot, they they sort of they're sort of okay with it. So for a long time. To get like you know stormtrooper armor, you'd have folks who would just sort of make it on the side. They'd sell it, they'd sell a kit at cost. So whatever your time and whatever how much you spent on plastic um, and your vacuum forming machine, you know, they wouldn't really bother you. So there was this sort of this network of uh, folks who would sell this stuff. They, you know, if you knew the right folks, you could get in touch with them and you know, send them a send them a couple hundred bucks, and they would send you a, um, a, a box of plastic and that you'd assemble. Um, that's how Alvin Johnson got his armor um, in the mid, uh, I think I'll say 90, 1996, 1997, um, because the, the Star Wars films had come back to theaters. Um, he and a friend built their two suits of Stormtrooper armor and went to the theater in armor and blew everybody away. And Alvin sort of realized, like, hey, you know, if we have more troopers, we can, this is much cooler. So that's when he sort of set up the 501st. He started to set up the 501st. He went to Dragon Con and other, did a whole bunch of events in the area and was like, you know, let come come join me. Um, you know, we want we want to make this a, a group. Um, he set up a website and people started sending in pictures of themselves and they sort of imagined themselves as like, hey, you know, I'm TK, yeah, I think, he, uh, yeah, I'm TK123. This is my story. And like they, they did that for a little while. And it just grew and grew. Um, it it became a worldwide thing after a couple of years, and um, it's just it hasn't really let down ever since. Um, I got started in two thousand three. I was in, um, just out of high school. I we had a um, I, I was in band in high school. We had um, I bugged my music teacher for years to let us play Star Wars, and for my final concert, we ended up playing Star Wars. And to make the make the concert even cooler, we ended up say. Um, inviting a member of the 501st to come out and show up and take, you know, show up at the a pivotal moment when we started playing Imperial March, he marched down the, the, the aisle and the crowd went nuts. And, um, uh, he, at the end of the night, he gave me his, you know, I had his contact information. He said, you know, here's how to get the armor. So I went and got it and I got my first set of armor. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's sort of the cool. old way, you know, you sort of had to know where to get it. You sort of had to know where to go. And for a long time, that's that's basically what it was. You could join the five hundred first, and they would say, you, you, in our forums, you would you know talk. You, you'd have somebody you could talk to, and they or they would have it listed like you know this these folks are good to buy armor from, um, or you know skip eBay because you know you might get something that's overpriced or or that's a scam. And so that, that's how a lot of these transactions happen is through is people people talking to one another on, on internet forums. Um, and it wasn't just the five hundred first. There was the Replica props forum. Um, there's various detachment forums for each one of the costume types in uh, that we have in the 501st. And um, yeah, that's basically how that worked. It's begun to change quite a bit in the last couple of years because what's happened is that 3D printing has um, really sort of democratized that a lot. Because what you can do now is you can put up an entire set of armor on Thingiverse, or you can sell your your plans for somebody uh, for whatever costume you've designed and then you can just you don't have to actually manufacture the armor yourself you can leave that to the user to do that so there are entire costume types that now people instead of going through that traditional method of of um of vacuum forming it they can just 3d print it so one of the ones that i have is a shore trooper um which is vacuum formed but you can buy you can buy or you can download plans to print it out yourself um, and I actually have a couple of 3D printed parts on mine because of um, 
the the original sculpt that I had wasn't terribly accurate. So that actually um, was a was a positive. I didn't have to replace an entire piece. I could just replace a small piece of it. And uh, a short, it was a little sorry, more accurate. The short trooper. The short trooper. Is this from sorry. from uh, Rogue One. Yes, that's the. Okay. Those are the guy. The they're they're tan. They look a little bit like a scout trooper. Um, actually, I have a helmet right here. I can show you. Uh, these guys. Oh yeah, totally. Um, they're sort of like the the stormtrooper version of the Marines, I guess. And, um, yeah, like there there was a a guy who designed the files and um, you know, put them up on up on a, a folder for free. Said you know if you want to do it, you know it, it. Go ahead and download them, make your own, remix it, whatever. And then uh, we've got a lot of them now. <laughs> um, so that's one of the newer ways to do it. Um, there's also uh, platforms like uh, Etsy. Um, you can, you can buy, you can have, you can commission stuff from people or you can buy parts. Um, there's an entire ecosystem of, um, web, you know, uh, uh, storefronts that you can, you can buy stuff from, or you can set up your own storefront if you're a maker. So that's, that's all infrastructure that didn't exist when I started. Um, I, I, I marveled at the fact that like when I wanted to buy, when my son wanted to dress up as Spider-Man, I could just go up on Amazon and buy a Spider-Man costume that was pretty looked pretty good and it just you know arrived at my doorstep from from somewhere after a couple days and um you know again that that was just a network that really didn't exist for me you know 20 years ago so a lot's changed um yeah i remember when we were at uh, uh at fan expo they were having workshops in different types of uh you know cosplay uh costume creation and this idea of 3d printing and the technology i mean that's it feels like it's more accessible i imagine there's youtube tutorials and this sort of thing like you know what, what do you think it goes next you know in terms of 3d printing and that sort of thing like what's your sort of you know dream for 10 years from now in terms of costume <laughs> creation because it's already pretty wild right yeah i don't know if i don't know if there's any big technological changes around the corner like 3d printing that's a that's a pretty um advanced technology and one of the reasons we're seeing so much of that now is because we um a, a whole bunch of patents on the technology expired so back in the eight the, the 3d printing itself came about in 1980s and it was used for a lot of industrial purposes mostly for for rapid prototyping um if you're a company that needed to make make something you didn't want to spend a lot of money to like, you know, make a mold of, you know, like a die cast mold or something that's really super expensive. Um, and so, you know, the, the way the patents work is just, they, they expire after a little while. They give somebody a monopoly on an idea. They can profit off of it. And then after, I don't know what it is, 20, 30, 40 years, um, that, it, that expires and, you know, the general public can then take advantage of it. So one of the things we've seen is that there's a lot of companies out there that have made their own 3D print, you know, they've made their own and released their own 3D printers. And like, I've got one down in my basement. It was a couple hundred bucks, um, which is, a uh, you know, within the, the right range of a hobbyist who had with a little bit of disposable income. Um, and the more you remove those barriers, the more they're going to be adopted. So as the price on 3D printing came down, the more people are going to say like, Hey, I can, I can. I might not spend a thousand dollars on this, but maybe five hundred or two fifty or a hundred. Depends on how how low that that barrier goes. Um, and once you once you start at the low end and you start to get more proficient in it, that's when you start to spend more and more money because you either buy more printers or um, more expensive equipment. My my guess is that what we will see with three D printing is that we'll see a lot of successive advances within the technology itself. Um, we've already, we've also seen a, a growth in um, resin 3D printers. So there's the there's a couple different types. There's one it's extruded plastic, which is basically you have a spool of, of plastic wire that is put down through a nozzle, heated up, and it goes along on a, a computer circuit a, a, a path that the computer dictates. So and you adds a line of melted plastic little by little, and that's how you get your object. Um, what a resin printer what a resin 3D printer does is it shoots a laser through a vat of resin. And where the lasers lasers, lasers intersect, um, they will begin to form that plastic. Uh, it'll begin to cure that plastic um, in the vat. So once it's done, you pull it out and you have this object without print lines or anything like that. So I think we'll see more of that. My guess is that we will see 
Um, the, the type of extrusion printers will get a little bit better. Um, we might see better resin printers. It, it all, I, my, that's my guess is that, you know, just be little advances as people or as companies, you know, develop the technology and just make it better and better. Or, and, um, uh, yeah, that basically that's on, on the, on the manufacturing side, on the tech, on the software side, I think that's probably where you'll see some other advances. Um, I tried to model a handle for my, um, refrigerator. We had one that broke and I didn't want to spend the 30 or 40 bucks to get it replaced from the company. So I tried, it's like, ah, oh, I can do this. It's just a simple shape. It's a, the flat thing with a curve. And it took me like four hours <laughs> to try to figure out the software to try to get it, to try to make it. Your mileage will vary depending on how computer savvy you are. I did not find it very user-friendly. Um, it's, it's, I, I think that a lot of the a lot of the the design software is kind of esoteric and and made for a certain audience. Um, my guess is that there will be new programs that will come out that will make it much much easier to build stuff and design stuff. Um, uh, you know, for 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 somebody who's just a casual user, um, that's not to say that you know folks don't dive right into it and really learn how to use Blender or any of the other types of technology, uh, any of the other software platforms that are out there. But, um, my guess is that, you know, eventually, you know, we'll see, we'll see that, um, user accessibility will be, will, will be much better, uh, moving forward or start to move forward. You talk about democratizing, uh, cosplay with 3d printers. Maybe that's those people who are able to do the CAD drawings, you know, and then they share it, like you said, up to Thingiverse mm -hmm. as they become much more accessible. Um, maybe that's what's really going to grow it, right? Is people sharing and doing the hard yeah. work, making it easier for that, everyone else. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing right now, actually, is is this really, this explosion in talent who've, of people who just learn how to do this. Um, and yeah, you'll see you'll see people who will share stuff. Um, think of, I, you know, if I need a, a really simple model for something, um, I can grab it from there. Or, um, you know, if I wanted something that was a lot more accurate, I'll buy it from somebody who's who's selling their plans. And there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's folks who will sell that on Etsy or the, if they'll go to a Facebook page and say like, you know, Hey, I've, I've got these plans, you know, I'll, I'll sell them to you for whatever, whatever it is. And, um, yeah, that's, we're seeing a lot of that right now, which is pretty cool. And, um, along the same lines of the sort of the, the democratization thing is that it's not just, that's not limited to 3d printing. If you go onto YouTube and you type in, how do I build XYZ costume? You will probably find uh, a whole bunch of tutorials for how that how to build something like that. So, YouTube, um, like th this is stuff that you would used to have in forums, which was great because like before before the internet, you'd have to do it yourself. When you have internet forums like the Five First forums or the Replica Props forum or Anime.com, um, LiveJournal, uh, anything like that, you would have a whole bunch. You know, you'd have people who would have the expertise, but it was all sort of locked up in those communities that you had to go to. Now you can just easily access it by going to, um, you know, these platforms like like YouTube or um, I'm trying to think. There's there's some there's a website for like how to build stuff. Instructional.com, instruction some instructables.com. There are there's no shortage of places that will have directions for how to do stuff like that. Um, avail you know, widely available to you. Um, and it, you know, that's, that's great. I mean, that, that means that it's easier for people to sort of say like, Hey, I want to dress up as this character, you know, that, that barrier has been removed or at least lowered a little bit so that, you know, you can say like, all right, well, I want to make, I want to make, um, a giant Lego figure, for example, I can go onto, you know, a 3d, a 3d print size site and find a model for a large oversized Lego. Um, I can go onto YouTube and find directions on how to make the rest of it out of cardboard and voila, I have a, a large costume that I can then put together myself. You know, it's interesting. So, it's like the er, in the early days of the internet, we, you know, had to relearn or we learned. They're like, wow, now we can have a picture from of anything from everywhere, right? There was a time when it was hard to get a picture of something. You'd go to the library, you would, <laughs> you know, look in books, you'd order posters, but like now all images are just available and everybody knows that right and and there will come a time in 3d printing right when it'll just be so common that it'll be understood that any object is available 
and and you know it, you know I think the revolution in ten years will be not necessarily in any part of the technology, which seems like it's developing fine, but the the you know the commonality or just how how popular it is that it's suddenly. It, it, Suddenly, you know, huge changes can happen because everybody will just do it and it'll be obvious. It's kind of like Zoom, right? Like COVID put <laughs> us through this time when we had the technology forever to do all this mm -hmm. stuff, right? Have virtual meetings. Like, and it has huge consequences of like cutting down a massive amounts of commuting and air travel and like carbon dioxide output. Like it was huge, the benefits of just people doing Zoom meetings now or, or video calls or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> uh, because everybody's just doing it. Now we get it. Like, oh, I don't have to go. I don't have to drive there at all. I'll just call the guy in a video. So I think the sim similar thing will happen with 3D printing, right? It'll just suddenly, when everybody's doing yep. it, there will be new possibilities. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I, I think that part of it, part of the battle is just making people realize, like, oh, this is a thing I can do. Um, right. I know that, like, you know, it, when you come out of a film, like, oh, I really wish I could be Batman. You don't really think... I mean, unless you're sort of already sort of inclined to think that way, but like if you're sort of a casual fan or, or just a casual moviegoer, you're like, you might not take that next step. Like, oh, I want to be Batman and just sort of move on with your life. But then, or think like, maybe that'd be a good Halloween costume. But then like, if you sort of see somebody on your Facebook page who is cosplaying as Batman, like, oh, that person's doing that. I can do that. And so I think that there's, there's sort of a, this normalization that happens, um, with, and uh, that's been sped a lot and this is one of the things I talk about in the book is is how important social media is for this uh, because something like a Facebook page like a Facebook news feed it doesn't you know you're you're if you think about your life you're you sort of separate people into buckets so like I have my coworkers I have my 501st friends I have my family I have my school friends and just you know other people in my social orbit they're all sort of some of, there's some crossover between them, but there's there's not all there's they're all largely separate. What Facebook did when it released its news feed is it basically put everybody into one bucket. And so if I go to a convention, as I would do, uh, or or go to an event over the weekends, and you know I could get tagged in pictures or post up pictures myself, everybody would see them. So I, I'd have friends who would see me dress up, who like oh yep, there's Andrew. That's that we knew he'd turn out that way <laughs> or um, other 501st friends or like I'd meet other friends through Facebook or Instagram or our Twitter because of our common interests. So I think that, that that's, there's been that sort of normalization there. Um, and part of that has also come to like, you know, Game of Thrones, which was this, this, these big doorstop cat killer books um, that were in, of interest really to a, a very large segment of, of the, of the fantasy fan community, but like not, not really a mainstream thing. That's like commonplace now. Like if you say winter is coming, everybody knows what you mean. Um, if you say Avengers assemble, like everybody knows what you mean, even if they're not like a hardcore comic fan, because they've seen the Marvel movies. Um, may the force be with you. You know, everybody, almost everybody in the world has seen star Wars, except for my mother, um, <laughs> which is kind of ironic because, you know, I, I do this for a, I've been doing this for like 20 years now. Like, you know, the, 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 the way that pop culture has shifted, it's, it's, you know, science fiction and fantasy stuff is cool now. Like this, this is what is in it's, it's what dominates the, the box office. So I, that is also a big segment of why I think cosplay has gotten much more popular. It's because it's just, people are interested in it now, like just more broadly than ever before. And when you have that sort of that confluence of like, you know, popular movies, um, social media, you know, the ease of access to making stuff. Um, you know, you can now, you now have all the ingredients for someone who might not have been a hardcore science fiction fantasy fan, but, or costumer who had, you know, gone to conventions or, and, you know, and, and like been involved in costuming communities for a long time. Like, you know, you, it's just suddenly very easy for you to make a, a Batman costume or to make, um, you know, take your pick. And, you know, they, those costumes might not be the greatest you've ever seen to start with, but once you make one and you learn from it and you start to make more, you know, you get, to, you start to get better at it. And I think that, you know, there's an entire community of people who are very supportive and it's, it's a great way to meet people of similar interests and, you know, it's just becoming more of a thing. Can you talk to us a little bit about the inclusivity of cosplay? Because it just seems like a very inclusive uh, hobby 
it's it's what i mean when we when we go to fan expo and we see the runway mm-hmm. everyone's cheering and you've got people that that may didn't know each other before the weekend but now they're taking pictures together and um it just seems to be open to every type of person of all ages and it's just it's so inclusive it's it's kind of beautiful can you tell us about like what what's going on with cosplay and being so inclusive to 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 everyone yeah be- beautiful is a really good way to desc- to describe it um i mean it ultimately i think it's it's community um you know you are you're meeting folks of like mind you know you you have like-minded interests and it, that is a power, very very powerful thing i think because it can help you know your love of, of a story i think is something that helps transcend borders it transcends politics it, it transcends family or social networks um so i think that there's a really important element to it that you know makes it useful as a societal thing you know it's glue that holds us together um it, it is a i think it is a very inclusive community and i i've i'm i'm always I'm, I'm always really relieved to see that because like there are elements of there are and and there are certainly people in there out there who will be like well that that's not accurate um or your your character is the wrong color you, you you can't have a black batman or or whatever um and by and large, you know, people sort of reject those arguments because, you know, it, it's a it's all it's all made up. You can do whatever you want with, as with cosplay. If you want to make a rainbow colored stormtrooper, you can do that. If and it's not like you know, when we are dressing up, we are you know going before cameras for a you know movie. We're doing this for our own pleasure, so we can do whatever we want with the characters. I, I think it's inclusive because I think everybody, you know, when you're a fan, you just want to have more fans around you. And, you know, it's, it's not really like, it's not a competition or it's not, it's not always a competition. Like you were trying, you know, you're just, you see someone dressed up as a, as a character that you, you recognize and you, you know, you appreciate the effort that they put into it, that, you know, they've gone that step to dress up as that character. There's other elements of it too. I think, you know, I, I spoke with a couple of, um, uh, cosplayers who are trans and non-binary who've they found it to be a fairly fairly welcoming community because you know you can sort of be yourself and your yourself can be changeable like you can be you can dress you can dress up as a whatever gendered character you want um and sort of just try to be more like yourself in in, in that, if that if that makes sense um or you can you can dress up as a suit of armor and sort of have that part of your identity be erased and um there's a, a good friend of mine, Thorn, um, who dresses up as a Mandalorian, who they they really appreciated that element that, you know, that folks aren't really going to make those assumptions that they can find so stressful um, when they put the helmet on. So I think that there's that element of it, too, is that you can just you can just be yourself. Um, and I think people just, you know, see and appreciate that. Um, now, that 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 to be said or to be fair, there, there are, you know groups that are very you know they're very strict on their appearance like the final first is one uh, is, is one such group um we have some fairly strict strict standards for how we have to look um in order to join the group you have to you know your your armor has to um meet meet those standards to be to be accepted in and i think that's just sort of a a, a level of preference for the group just to make sure that there's a uniform look rather than um the, the way I've best heard it is it's not it's not to sort of keep people out. It's just to make to just sort of have a standard that looks you know that everybody sort of looks um, or it will either push people to to you know improve or to sort of um, it's the best word. How to, I'm trying to remember how how it was described to me, but um, it's a kind of sense you know, it's, of baseline, it's sort of, right? Yeah, a baseline is a good word for it. I've seen you know that we, and as in the final first, we don't you know we don't discriminate against you know. You, you can be a guy or sorry, you, you can be a girl and, and wear stormtrooper armor. Um, you could be four, four and a half feet tall and be a stormtrooper. You have to cut it down a little bit and make it look sort of proportional. Um, you can be, you know, a lot heavier and wear one, or you can be really, you know, really thin, tall and thin. Um, it, it all comes down to like just how the, how the armor fits and, and how proportional and stuff it is. And, you know, not, you know, throughout the, the world of cosplay stuff, not everybody, quite gets the right appearance or the right proportions or something. But, you know, again, it's like, it's not about trying to be 
it's not always about trying to match the canon experience, the canon um, look and feel of a character. It's it's sort of an expression of your fandom, um, and I, I think that it's it's really hard to sort of um, you know. Unless you're a really awful person, I guess you know it's it's really sort of hard, uh, you know, hard to harsh that, it, it and it's, yeah. you know, to go out of your way to be really mean about it. So I think that there's a lot of incentive for, within the community to sort of, you know, to be supportive and to really be up, you know, try to uplift your fellow makers, and that that's one of the things I really love about it. Um, is just this this idea that you know we're we're all trying, you know, we're all trying to do our best, and you know we recognize that. And, you know, and I think it's. Uh, Sorry, fascinating that, you know, the basis, the cultural basis here is generosity, right? But that's been true of religion and, and any other, like, you know, uh, sort of community that you might build around that, like, oh, you know, Christians will come together and I believe in Jesus and you believe in Jesus, so I'm going to be generous with you and I'm going to take care of you. And and now, you know, there are all these different communities. This one is, oh, you're a maker, I'm a maker. You know, we love the same thing. I'm going to be generous. We're fans of the same thing. We're going to, like, you know, uh, come together in, in, in the spirit of... Of helping each other out, right? And I I really have to ask you this one question because I only recently experienced my first cosplay event at Fan Expo, but I've been going to raves and festivals for you know since the '90s, and it's the same culture there. Like, and it's not just that it's a culture of generosity because we like to dance, you know, in the woods in the middle of the night to Psytrance. That's true too, but but there's a huge costume element to the whole rave scene and always has been, right? And and that seems to be part of, you know, this culture that's leaked out uh, into cosplay. But what I find fascinating is cosplay seems to be made of, you know, it, it's very generous and inclusive, yes. But as in my experience, you know, looking around, uh, these are all introverts. These are the nerds. These are the people that were generally quiet because they've sort of self-selected for being the kind of person that's like into some obscure thing and they'll make this costume all year long. And then they all come out and display it. But at the raves, it's like, you know, the exhibitionists are wearing the costumes and the, the extroverts and the, you know, uh, so there seems to be like common cultural everything from costume to generosity to inclusivity to all of that and yet there's this diversity of like who's there um you know would you agree with that is it a sort of an introvert crowd like i love that because it's nerds <laughs> yeah. i i think it's hard to draw a, a too much generalization there because yeah there's there are some folks who are like they're they were the theater kids who are really out there and really outgoing um and really want to perform Right. Um, if you go onto Instagram and you see some folks who are, um, you know, who have, who have found their niche as a, as a cosplay, like influencer, like, you know, some of them can be the most outgoing folks in the world. Hmm. Um, but then, then again, you know, your environment also, it also depends on your environment. You might feel, you know, more introverted in a workplace setting or a school setting, but like when you were surrounded by friends at a, at a convention, um, you know, that, that, that whole social dynamic flips for you. Mm -hmm. Um, the one, I don't know any, I don't know anything about raves or the rave culture, but what I, one of the things that I did find interesting is I went to a, uh, World War II reenactment last fall or last mm -hmm. summer in Reading, Pennsylvania. And, um, those, the folks who are dressing up in World War II gear, they were exactly the same as my 501st friends. Like they were interested in accuracy they you know they were continually upgrading their kits to like oh i found this this like original patch or you know i got the original you know these, these original parts that had been you know you know real army surplus they weren't like you know I didn't, I didn't have to make them myself or fabricate them myself um the same they had the same level of enthusiasm for what they were trying to do so like you know if you, you just basically swap uniforms they're the, some of the same folks and actually some people I've got a good friend of mine, Dan Selleck, who's a reenactor and a 501st and Rebel Legion member. So I think that there are a lot of common points within from culture to culture. Um, it's just like, you know, how that's expressed based on your own personal interests. And that sort of takes me back to like the, the my point about like, you know, um, you know, reenacting and living history is not really strictly cosplay, but it's got some of the same ingredients. And they, they sort of rhyme with one another. So I, it doesn't surprise me that you would find, um, you know, something like uh, rave culture, which involves a lot of sort of public performance or at least performance within, you know, within, with people around you. 
Um, you might have folks who are a little bit more extroverted as opposed to somebody who might be more inclined to hold, hold up at a workshop and build a costume for 10 years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it might, it might just be just the environment or it might be just what interests them. But I, and again, I think some of that's changing just because, you know, Marvel and, and Star Wars and things, those are not really, um, you know, of interest to the, the lonely nerds at high school anymore. Like, like I was like, it, it's more of a, you know, a much more mainstream thing. So, um, but there's room for everybody. And for our listeners who want to find out more about the book and you, Andrew, where can they find you? You're on Twitter. Where else? So I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Andrew Liptak. Uh, my last name is L I P T A K. Um, I write a newsletter called transfer orbit, which, um, it's transfer-orbit.ghost.io. If you go onto Twitter or, or Google my name, you'll you'll find it in one of my a link linked in my bio or, or wherever. Uh, I'm and I'm on Instagram at liptechaa, um, so you can find me there. And uh, for, as far as the book goes, you can find it at any. I think you can find it in the UK. I'm, I'm sure you can find it in Canada. Like just look at you know look at any bookstore um, website. Um, if you want to find the official page, if you go to um, simonandschuster.com. And, and search for it you'll find it there and that will tell you where you, all the different uh, retailers where you can find it um it's available trade paperback ebook and audiobook um as of writing right now i don't think the they've begun I mean, we've got a really fantastic narrator um i don't think she's begun narrating it just yet she, she's waiting on me to provide a couple of pronunciations uh, which i need to do and um yeah it'll be available june 28th uh, which i'm very excited and nervous about we'll see. hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that people will like it it's been sitting in my head for a whole bunch of years and we'll see if it makes sense to anybody else well i've been enjoying it and i i look forward to seeing all the photos because that's the fun stuff right yeah Just the the eye candy is is really what cosplay is about yeah it's a very visual hobby and that's that's um I, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be a good I, i'm hoping that it'll be something that people can flip through and enjoy and or you know read you know, straight through cover to cover or just read a chapter or two just to get a better understanding of something. But, um, yeah, I, I, I really hope people enjoy it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, until, until it comes out, I'll be sort of sitting in this state of, of nervousness wondering <laughs> if, if folks will enjoy it so far. People seem to have, but you know, well, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank we you. We really appreciate really it. This has been great. Thanks, Andrew. Andrew a lot yeah. of fun. Nice to meet you. I know. Thank you. Wait, before you go, we have to show you our, our main cosplay experience. <laughs> oh, Will Shatner. Yeah. When, yeah. when was that taken? Just this year, Fan Expo, the one we went to. Yeah, he looks like oh, a shriveled okay. raisin. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> we had a great time. It looks like a wax man. I don't care what anyone says, William Shatner looks amazing. Okay, so if you listen to this episode to the end, you should probably just go and rate us, let us know what you think of the show. We want to hear from you. We've got some great episodes coming out over the summer. Charles Strauss is coming on the show, another trivia episode special, and then we're going to do a one-year anniversary special. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time. <laughs>